The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Setting the Course for the Optimal Management of HCC, Improving Patient Outcomes Through the Integration of Novel Therapeutic Approaches Across the Continuum of Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash NGF 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'm joined tonight by uh, two colleagues, uh, Ahmed Kaseb from MD Anderson and Stacy Stein from Yale University. And tonight's topic is one that uh, 10 years ago would not have been on the radar because there wasn't as much going on, but we've seen a lot of evolution in the management for patients with advanced liver cancer. And I think it's important that we keep updated uh, and, and talk about what's going on in the future. So I'll start off with a somewhat broad introduction, review some of the, the data in the past few years in regards to systemic treatment, but really focusing on the small molecules, uh, and, and really talking about the evolution of treatment in liver cancer and how we approach this disease and opportunities for the future. So why are we here today talking about this? Well, liver cancer is a serious problem. Globally now, it's recognized as in the top three leading causes of cancer death. And still in the United States, we have not reached our peak incidence in liver cancer. Certainly, the driving force behind liver cancer growth in the United States historically has been hepatitis C. Fortunately, there's been very good drugs developed to cure patients. And eventually, hepatitis C-related liver cancer will fall. Globally, we know it's hepatitis B that drives the disease. But increasingly, increasingly there's the concern about non-alcoholic steatohepatitis and NASH. We know that the metabolic syndrome of diabetes, insulin resistance, obesity is epidemic in the United not only in, in the West, in the United States, but actually globally. And in the United States, we've made tremendous progress in many other malignancies, but HCC has been lagging. If we look at death rates and, and rises in death rates, Liver cancer really stands out against the other solid tumors we treat. So to understand liver cancer and this term unresectable liver cancer, we really need to benchmark ourselves to the Barcelona staging criteria, the BCLC, which now I think has become the default staging system, not only in clinical trials, but globally in clinical practice with some variations. But needless to say that when we talk about unresectable liver cancer, we're talking about those patients who would be considered Barcelona B and C. B being the intermediate patients who historically chemembolization was shown to improve survival. And in 2003, there was no systemic drug that was shown to improve survival, and therefore it said here new agents. I'm not going to focus on the other groups, which are curable, the early stage patients who will go on to receive maybe transplant or resection with curative intent, even some ablation. And then there's the patients who are ill just from their liver disease. And it's important for us always to remember our patients with liver cancer have two, two diseases that compete for events. And that is why the TNM staging system is inadequate, because it only focuses on the tumor characteristics. And importantly, we need to uh, concentrate also on the patient characteristics. 
Really, all 90% of these patients have underlying liver disease, and that will impact their survival. So for someone who has advanced cirrhosis and decompensated liver disease, it's going to be very hard to impact their survival if they develop cancer. We now have a whole new generation of drugs, and you know, over time, some of our paradigms might be changing. Now, the BCLC was developed from retrospective evaluation of prospective studies. This study from many years ago looked at C-O-calcitrol, a vitamin D uh, agonist versus placebo. And just to highlight that the natural history of this intermediate group, BCLCB, is different from C. Clinical characteristics that define these groups? Well, if we go back one slide, the intermediate group might be multinodular, they have a good performance status and no vascular invasion. Whereas the advanced stage patients can clearly have extrahepatic spread or they have vascular invasion and performance status is also an important prognostic factor. So keep in mind, you do not have to have extrahepatic spread to have advanced liver cancer. So for this intermediate group, TACE became the standard of care. Uh, here we see a meta-analysis of several uh, studies that demonstrated in a prospective fashion that TACE versus supportive care improved outcomes. Here are the two highly quoted pivotal trials, though somewhat small, that looked at TACE versus supportive care, one from Asia, the low study, and one from uh, Europe, by Joseph Yave, and both of these showed an improvement in overall survival with taste versus placebo. Now, keep in mind that at the time, we had no systemic treatments for advanced liver cancer. And both these studies concentrated on a well-defined population of patients. In that, they did not have uh, uh, very large tumor burdens. All of this was predefined, they did not have vascular invasion. And without systemic treatment over time, the use of local regional treatments like chemoembolization expanded to fill the void because we had nothing else to offer patients. And chemoembolization, I would argue, was used beyond in population of patients who did not have the data to support that. So with this background, let's talk about a patient case. Here we have a 59-year-old lady who has NASH and compensated cirrhosis who presented with right upper quadrant pain. An ultrasound shows a liver mass. An MRI is done, which shows a 6.5-centimeter lesion that has hypervascular features on the arterial phase with delayed washout and therefore can be considered LIRADS-5. And this tells us with over 90% likelihood that this represents a liver cancer in a cirrhotic patient. She also has two satellite lesions. There's no vascular invasion, no metastatic disease, child PUA based on her physiology. She does have portal hypertension. We see that she's thrombocytopenic with a platelet count of 90,000 and good performance status. So I'm going to reach out to my colleagues. Uh, Dr. Kaseb, what stage would you say this patient is? So this is um, 
uh, an intermediate stage patient here, um, so a patient who's uh, kind of not um, advanced, no vascular invasion, no metastatic, and uh, the uh, single lesion consistent with HCC with excellent liver function. So that's stage one. Yeah, so by the Barcelona criteria, you said intermediate. We'd call this patient stage B using that language. Uh, Stacy, how would you approach this patient for <clears throat> treatment? Yeah, so fortunately, this is someone that we're finding in a pretty early stage where we have, um, you know, treatment options. They're not a resection candidate, um, which is not based on size, but because we see these satellite nodules. So we would be thinking about local regional therapy um, for this patient and would refer to interventional radiology probably for chemoembolization. Chemoembolization, there's an increasing use of Y90 probably at some institutions as well. They're not a surgical candidate perhaps for the tumor burden, but also the thrombocytopenia, right? Portal hypertension is a common finding, at least in the West, because the patients have cirrhosis. That's different from East, the East Asia, where more patients have hepatitis B-related liver cancer, and they're better compensated, don't have as much portal hypertension, and certainly there's more surgical experience there. So as predicted, this patient undergoes a chemoembolization, with the idea that she could be downstaged and listed for transplant, potentially with curative intent. Now, all of us know that transplants aren't done off the shelf. It takes time. Patients need to wait and show that their tumor is controlled. And in this case, very typically, they have a one-month follow-up scan, and she's had a partial response to chemoembolization, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. Perhaps she would undergo a repeat procedure but what's changed for her is that she has developed a uh, portal vein invasion. Uh, she's still well compensated, good performance status. This will be a recurrent theme throughout the evening. So, uh, Dr. Kaseb, what are you thinking about now? So this is now a transformation from intermediate to advanced stage disease. And major vascular invasion and imaging is uh, equal to us as medical oncologists um, to metastatic disease. So that's when we really start thinking about systemic therapy approaches. And, you know, we'll talk about several of those approaches. Uh, Stacy, you know, how would you think about a treatment for this patient? Yeah. So, you know, I would... I agree that this patient is obviously more advanced now, and I would be thinking about systemic therapy. I will just put out there, though, that at a discussion at you know, Tumor Board, um, I think interventional radiology would still make the argument potentially for Y90 in this patient with only portal vein invasion. But, I, but you know, that's a debate we could have <laughs> later maybe, but, but I, do, um, I would be thinking about systemic therapy with combination therapy up front for this uh, patient. So... You know, it's, it's fair that you mention that. Uh, and there's a few things to keep in mind here. You know, stage migration is a real thing. You know, patients progress from one stage to the other. Potentially, this, the goal with this patient was to downstage them to within transplant criteria. But this patient, patient migrated from stage B to stage C being advanced because of the macrovascular invasion. And... You know, all of us are medical oncologists, so we're not going to have a good debate because we don't have an interventional radiologist here. But as we go through the evening, we'll discuss levels of evidence. And there's no doubt that the highest level of evidence 
coming from prospective randomized phase three studies would support the use of systemic treatment in this patient. And we need to recognize that patients do progress beyond local regional treatment criteria. So how do we know who is the best patient for TACE, or LRT for that matter? Because the, the randomized studies between TACE and Y90 never showed an efficacy advantage of Y90. There was a safety advantage. And the recent FDA approval for Y90, which came out of the legacy study, really looked at unilobular tumors, single tumors, and the average size of that tumor in legacy was like two and a half, three centimeters. So something to keep in mind, and what the updated version of the BCLC, and we'll come to that, highlights is that there's a lot of heterogeneity in intermediate disease. And, you know, there is probably a group of patients who technically have disease confined to the liver, but are better suited candidates for systemic treatment. And those are those patients i shown here who have single very large tumors or multinodular tumors. The sweet spot potentially are those patients in blue here who have a limited number of tumors of limited size. And it's important to recognize that if we do taste, and patients often need repeated uh, local regional treatments, that we don't compromise their liver function, which would then limit them to receiving systemic treatment. So how do we know this idea of taste refractoriness? Well, the Japan uh, Society, uh, the Liver Cancer Study Group of Japan, has come across with some guidelines, which I think are fairly reasonable. And that is, for any given lesion that you continue to do taste, and there continues to be residual disease, or you're doing taste to a lesion, and there's new tumors that continue to progress, or despite taste, tumor marker continues to grow, or as we saw in this patient, appearance of vascular invasion or clearly extrahepatic spread. So we're going to transition to the data supporting the use of systemic treatment. And, you know, the first study to show this was in 2007, the SHARP study, and then a companion study from Asia, which established a role for the small molecule multi-targeted inhibitor Serafinib, improving survival versus placebo. Both studies revealed a very similar risk reduction of about 30%. And interestingly, it did this without inducing a high number of objective responses, really by slowing progression. The drug has well-known side effects, hand-foot-skin reaction and GI toxicity, diarrhea, anorexia, uh, weight loss, some hypertension as it is a VEGF inhibitor. But needless to say, the expectation was that after serafinib was shown to be beneficial, that there would be drugs better than serafinib and new drugs for patients who don't benefit from serafinib. But it took a long time. In the frontline setting, it took a decade to get another drug approved in that setting. Lenvantinib, a very potent VEGF receptor, multi-targeted inhibitor, differentiating itself from serafinib on a few uh, targets, but most important, I think, is the FGFR, the fibroblast growth factor receptor, which is not covered by serafinib. This was a large global study, open label. Lenvantinib is dosed by weight, 12 versus 8 milligrams, based on their baseline weight. And importantly, to keep in mind, this study excluded patients who had main portal vein invasion. 
and also excluded patients who had very high tumor burdens, greater than 50% of their liver involved. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Now, this study did not show that linvantinib was superior in terms of overall survival. You can see the numbers here, 12.3 median survival for serafinib, 12.3 months, versus 13.6 months. The hazard ratio was 0.92, but the confidence interval crossed one. However, the upper limit of 1.06 was below the non-inferiority threshold of 1.08. What is unique with lenvantinib is that we saw double-digit responses. By conventional resist measurements, that objective response rate was just under 19% versus single-digit with serafinib, as expected. By modified resist, these numbers were higher. Linvantinib improved progression-free survival as assessed by modified resist, which takes into account the enhancement changes within a tumor, but essentially doubled PFS. And this benefit was very consistent across subgroups. I often like to point out, if you look at the stage B patients, the intermediate patients, with systemic treatment, you see with linvantinib or serafinib, but a little higher with linvantinib, a median survival of over 18 months. And who are these patients? Well, these are patients who had intermediate disease who progressed on TACE, suggesting that there probably is a role for medical treatment in this population. Just at ASCO today, we presented this data detailing a little bit on the responses from the REFLEX study, specifically with linvantinib, because we showed that the objective response rate was 19%. That's pretty high in the context of IO. We see with single-agent IO responses in the 15 to 20% range. And, and here we characterize those a little better, showing that the time to response was pretty quick, 2.8 months. And the duration of response, which had not been presented until today, was just over seven months. So a very reasonable response rate for a TKI. Here you see the AE profiles differ a little bit. Uh, both of them have very similar frequencies of GI toxicity, decreased appetite, weight loss, and diarrhea. There's more hypertension and higher grade hypertension with lenvantinib as compared to serafinib. And conversely, more hand-foot skin syndrome with serafinib. Uh, proteinuria and dysphonia are also more common with lenvantinib. Now, this data was presented by Dr. Kudo at ASCO GI uh, right before COVID uh, and, and is now in press. And what we showed that if you responded, regardless of which drug re you received, your survival was just over 22 months versus those patients who don't respond. And this number is important, and I want you to keep it in mind because I think it becomes recurrent, this idea that survival for some patients in frontline can be quite long. In second line, we've had robust data, but every drug I'm talking about here in second line has never been evaluated after linvantinib, let alone after immuno-oncology agents. The resource study defined regorafenib as being active in improving survival. This study took patients who tolerated a minimum amount of serafinib. They had documented progression on serafinib versus intolerance, which some other studies took, and looked at overall survival versus placebo, and was the first study to show that 
Rego improved survival in this population of patients. 7.8 months to 10.6 months has a ratio of 0.63. The side effect profile with Rego is not too dissimilar from serafinib and other multi-targeted kinase inhibitors, hypertension, hand-foot skin reaction, some GI toxicity. Now, given that Rego was approved some time ago, there's been a fairly large effort to define the real-world experience with regorafenib. And in the real-world experience, we actually see that in practice, the side effect profile of regorafenib, as well as the efficacy of regorafenib, very much mimics what was seen in the resource study. Cabozantinib is another multi-kinase inhibitor, differentiating itself because of its activity against the axle and CMET proteins. And in a similar study design, compared itself versus, uh, versus placebo in a placebo-controlled study, blinded study. This study actually had about 25 to 30 percent of patients who were actually third line. And with that, that inclusion criteria, still showed an improvement in overall survival. The hazard ratio here is 0.76, and in the intent-to-treat population, 8 to 10.2 months. The side effect profile very consistent with other uh, VEGF multi-kinase inhibitors, really nothing unique. There were five grade five treatment adverse events attributed to cabozantinib versus one in the placebo group. And finally, the monoclonal antibody ramucirumab has been shown to improve survival in patients with an elevated AFP. It is the only drug we have in liver cancer that's been linked to a biomarker. Uh, the side effect profile with ramucirumab is very clean because it is a monoclonal antibody. All its toxicity can be related to its binding to the VEGF R2 receptor. Uh, and based on data from the REACH study that indicated that elevated AFP might be a way to identify the patients that benefit, we launched the REACH2 study, a relatively small study under 300 patients randomized two to one, and this met its endpoint of an improvement in overall survival as demonstrated here. While the absolute magnitude of the median delta was about one and a half months, the hazard ratio was in the 0.7 range and very consistent with the other drugs. And the safety is very clean, right? You know, we see some hypertension, some vascular leak with edema, there was some ascites, and some patients did have increased encephalopathy, but in clinical practice, compared to the TKIs, there's very limited evidence of off-target toxicity, such as diarrhea uh, and a hand-foot skin reaction. Now, pembrolizumab received accelerated approval in the United States based on the Keynote 224 study, showing that it had an objective response rate of 18% in second line, and these responses were durable. The confirmatory study was Keno 240, which showed an improvement in overall survival from 10.6 to 14 months, has ratio of 0.78, p-value is 0.0238, but for significance, we had to hit a p-value of 0.0174. Needless to say, this confirmed that there was an objective response rate of about 18%. Toxicity was very manageable, and many people felt that this was clinically relevant. 
When ODAC reviewed this data last year, the feeling was that PEMRO should keep their accelerated approval pending confirmatory studies. And at ASCO GI a few weeks ago, months ago at this point, we saw the results of Keynote 394, very similar study design, but in Asia, so hepatitis B dominant population. And this study did meet its endpoint of improving overall survival with a hazard ratio of 0.79, with a p-value of 0.018. Survival went from 13 to 14.6 months. And you can see here that a number of patients in the placebo arm went on to receive PD-1 inhibition inhibitors after progression. At AACR a few weeks ago, uh, given the similarity between 240 and 394, we performed a meta-analysis, and we show a very consistent benefit of using pemrelizumab after prior TKI. Now, the majority of patients in both studies, in the, in the Western study, all of them had only serafinib, but in Asia, some patients do receive Fulflox, which is on the, the bottom uh, graphs. But both, both PFS and OS was consistent regardless of what patients received frontline, and the objective response rate was around 15%. And there was really no subgroup that did not get a benefit from pembrolizumab use in the second-line setting, looking at OS, PFS, and ORR. So finally, in the second line in the United States, we have FDA approval for ipilimumab and nivolumab now being studied in a frontline study versus TKIs, but this was based on Checkmate 040, which showed an objective response rate of 30% in three different regimens, dosing regimens. RMA was the one that got FDA approval with a survival of 23 months in second line. We do see that as you add CTLA-4 inhibition, to nivolumab, we actually increase the immune-related adverse events, and about 50% of patients in this study did need steroids to manage those events. So in closing, if we look at the BCLC now, much more complicated than it was in 2003, a few things have changed. And we'll hear about the data driving this from my colleague shortly. But if you look at the intermediate group, it's now segmented into those patients who are intermediate and can be downstaged to transplant criteria. There's those who will get local regional treatment with taste as definitive treatment. And there's this group of patients who have negative prognostic factors for taste and should be receiving systemic treatment. And in regards to what the modern systemic treatments are in frontline, I'll now hand it over to my colleague. So, uh, Stacy, take it away, talking about refining first-line therapy selection in advanced liver cancer. Okay, great. Hi, everyone. Um, so, let's start by talking about, um, so this is a slide looking at the current NCCN guidelines, um, and we're going to go over why the preferred regimen is now um, first-line combination atezolizumab and bevacizumab, um, which was looked at only in, in child PUA patients. Um, we still have serafinib, linvatinib, um, and now dervalimab, which we'll talk about, um, pembrolizumab, and because nivolumab was um, <clears throat> no longer approved, um, it's left in the guidelines for, you know, more, um, 
uh, that it, acknowledging that there are still, you know, some patients on it, and and there may be certain instances where where you would consider um, using it. And we we've already gone through the second line data. So um, there was a um, arm in the original phase one atezolizumab and bevacizumab study that was for HCC patients, um, and that study showed an impressive response rate of 36% um, with a high um, survival. And so based on that promising data, uh, the phase three Embrave 150 study was conducted that looked at patients um, with the um, basically similar criteria to the other studies that we've um, reviewed. They all had to have an EGD within six months um, to look for varices. And um, for this study, the varices had to be treated um, based on local standards of the hospital. Um, so it wasn't pre-specified. And uh, they were all child PUA, and they were randomized to a um, combination of atezolizumab and bevacizumab versus serafinib. And so this was um, really impressive data with the uh, highest overall survival that we've ever seen in this disease of, uh, of um, 18 months, um, 19 months, sorry. And you could see that there's a nice separation of the curves um, that start um, as early as six months and continue out, um, and there's still a tail there, and you could see that in the um, PFS also. So, um, and then uh, there was additional data presented with another 12 months of follow-up that showed that the overall response rate was still 30%. Um, versus 8% with serafinib. Um, and uh, the, um, the safety was um, impressive also. Um, the duration, so we have a confirmed overall response rate of 30% versus 11. And it's always a little higher with modified resistance. We're looking at um, uh, response in just the, the liver. So that was up to 35%. Um, with a few complete responses um, and a impressive disease control rate of 74% with a median duration of response of 18 months. So this was really unprecedented data. And what was nice to see is that these responses were not um, at the expense of increased adverse events. Um, so we know, you know, the common side effects of serafinib from TKIs that are uh, decreased in this combination, so less diarrhea, less hand-foot-skin reaction, um, less change in appetite. There is, um, you know, more grade 3, 4 hypertension from the bevacizumab, which is usually um, easy to manage and doesn't really affect quality of life, um, and, you know, overall safe. To comment on the bleeding event, so all the patients had to have EGD, um, and patients with untreated varices were not allowed on the study. And, you know, with that selection, um, the incidence of grade 3, 4 bleeding events on the combination was 6.4% versus 5.8 on serafinib. So, you know, I just bring up that it's, you know, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors are not without bleeding risk themselves. They also have VEGF inhibition. So it's not that it's unsafe in one group and necessarily, you know, safe, safe in another. Um, but uh, so this was, you know, a well-selected um, 
group with a, with a good side effect profile. And what was also very nice to see is there were patient reported outcomes collected on this study. And so not only are we getting improved survival and responses, but we also saw um, that there was a delay to um, time of deterioration by patient reported quality of life, um, which I think is really important, you know, and especially in this cancer where we know that, you know, sometimes progression can be tied to real decompensation um, for patients to be able to report that they have a better quality of life. And it was really significant from 3.6 months to 11.2. Um, I think you can't um, understate how, how important that is. Uh, all right, so let's move on and talk about combination of CTLA-4 antibodies and PD-1 pathways. So um, we just heard a little bit of data of Ipi and Nevo in the second line, um, and we know, right, that there's a priming phase in the periphery, and then this enhances the effector phase in the tumor microenvironment, right? So we see, um, you know, hopefully more activity with a combination with a CTLA-4 antibody. And this study of tremolumumab plus dervalumab was in... Um, first-line uh, systemic therapy for patients who progressed on, were intolerant, or refused serafinib with a primary endpoint of safety. And this was a novel approach compared to the standard Ipinevo approach where patients receive four doses of a CTLA-4 antibody. So the first um, arm there on the left in blue, patients were given a single priming dose of chemilumumab at 300 milligrams plus, um, plus dervalumab every four weeks. And then uh, in the next arm, patients had a lower dose of chemilumumab, but it was given for um, the standard four doses than with ongoing uh, dervalumab. There was another arm that looked at just single-agent dervalumab and then a single-agent, um, in the initial study, single-agent chemilumumab. And we see here from the phase two data um, that... Um, you know, the median overall survival um, was highest in the um, single priming dose um, regimen, um, which was nice to see, right, that we were able to get this um, benefit in survival without needing the four doses where we see so much more toxicity in the uh, Ipinevo um, combination. So based on this data, um, the phase three Himalaya trial was conducted. And so this was um, four arms again, looking at patients with um, child PUA disease, and they either got dervalumab, um, two different doses of the um, dervalumab and uh, tremolumumab versus um, serafinib. And we see here um, the first line dervalumab plus tremolumumab versus serafinib. So this was the, um, the T300 is the stride regimen. So this is the single, um, the single dose of tremolumumab. And the um, median overall survival um, versus serafinib. So I find it amazing that the serafinib arm kind of keeps having a better overall survival rate as years go on. And that really reflects that, you know, most patients are getting more than one line of therapy. Um, perhaps these patients wound up getting immune therapy further on or additional TKIs. So now we're up to a survival of serafinib arm of 13.8 months versus 16.4. Um, and you could see that there's a tail of the curve there. 
And then the single agent durvalumab, I thought was interesting, was non-inferior to serafinibus first-line therapy. So you could see that the um, survival curves are, are um, pretty close together there with not a significant de difference in um, median overall survival. It was 16.6 months in the, um, uh, in the durvalumab alone arm. Um, and so you really see that this combination shows improved efficacy across patient subgroups. Um, so regardless of viral etiology, extrahepatic spread, macrovascular invasion, um, and pdl one status. And then looking at safety, so, you know, the immune-related adverse events, grade 3, 4, um, for the stride regimen was 12.6%. Um, with about 20% of patients requiring steroids, which is significantly lower than the data that we just heard with Ipi and Nevo in the second line, um, with only 5.7% of patients leading to discontinuation of the therapy. And then in the Dervalimab alone arm, um, about half that percentage of patients required um, steroids and led to discontinuation. Um, and if we look at the grade three, four, um, you know, related adverse events across in the stride regimen, it was 25% in Dervalimab 12.9 and in Serafinib 36.9, um, really highlighting, I think, that, um, you know, there are um, significant toxicity with TKIs. So next trial to... Uh, think about is the COSMIC 312 study. So this is looking at first-line cabozantinib with or without atezolizumab versus serafinib. So now, um, instead of VEGF inhibition or CTLA-4, um, we're looking at one of the TKIs already approved in HCC, um, and patients were randomized to combination cab cabozantinib alone or serafinib. Um, and you could see here that the... Um, the PFS uh, was increased from 4.2 months to, um, to 6.8. And here, you know, you could see that the overall survival um, curves cross, and there was not a survival benefit. Um, you know, which is interesting to kind of th think about the mechanisms of, mechanisms of action, knowing that there is some VEGF inhibition um, with cabozantinib, um, but we are not seeing the survival benefit that we see with the combination with um, bevacizumab. And if we look at the um, response um, rate, so we saw um, uh, really no, well, there must be one complete response um, on the combination arm. We saw a few partial responses um, and the um, median duration of response was 10.6 months um, in the combination, 8.8 .8 in serafinib, and surprisingly, 15.1 um, in the cabozantinib alone arm. And in terms of um, adverse events, we saw, um, you know, for grade three and above, um, kind of expected side effects that you would see with um, a TKI in really in all of the arms. Um, so uh, we also have data with lenvatinib and pembrolizumab from the first, um, from the phase 1b study, um, where we saw um, an impressive um, overall response rate 
of 36%, so kind of similar to the phase one data of Atizo and BEV. Um, and, you know, based on, um, based on these uh, impressive phase one results, we have now the phase three LEAP002 study looking at first-line lymvatinib plus pembrolizumab um, in advanced disease. And so we don't have results of that study yet, but that, that is um, anticipated and uh, will be, I think, interesting to see with the information that we have now of um, TKI with immune therapy to see how this combination measures up. Um, we also have the Phase three Checkmate 9 uh, DW study looking at first-line nivolumab and ipilimumab. Um, and so that study um, is also ongoing. And I think that will be interesting to see how that compares looking at kind of the standard four doses of, um, of ipilimumab. And I wanted to point out that there are multiple other um, early phase studies with immunotherapy combinations. So this is not the exhaustive list, um, but um, you know, I think some of the studies that hopefully we'll be seeing data from soon um, and you know, really now that the gold standard is a TISO and BEV, we'll see how these, um, these compare. Um, so, you know, we have now data looking at um, CTLA-4 combination with Dervalimab and Tremolumumab, looking at the stride regimen. Um, they did not include patients with um, portal vein invasion, main portal vein invasion. Um, there is data with uh, phase two data from Dervalimab and Bevacizumab um, with a response rate of 21.3%. Um, there is um, the data now with Atizo and Cabazantinib. Um, and, you know, interestingly, um, you know, as we've mentioned, all of the studies that have been discussed so far have only included child PUA patients. Um, but for anyone that takes care of this patient population, we know that the majority of the patients that we see um, are child PUB. And so, um, you know, there's uh, a lot of extrapolation of data, um, but it will be nice to have more um, trial data really looking at this patient population and a couple of different regimens. Um, and so uh, I'm going to switch gears to talking about emerging uh, multimodal approaches um, and thinking about combinations here. So um, this is a, a new newer field on tumor treating fields that are anti-mitotic therapy. Um, and we have, um, because this is probably something that people are less familiar with, we have a, a very short video that just um, will give us a little bit of background information. In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest in cancer cell death. 
In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Transducer arrays can be placed on the scalp, chest, or torso to deliver TT fields that kill cancer cells. The placement of transducer arrays is personalized for each patient. So this is, um, you know, an emerging therapy that is being used in, um, in different cancers and has been studied, I think, you know, mostly in GBMs. Um, so for each tumor type, there um, is a different frequency that's used for HCC. It's 150 kilohertz. Um, that's kind of specific to the um, organ and cell size. Um, and there was a phase two um, HEPANOVA trial that looked at um, HCC, um, so using these uh, TTF um, fields concurrent with first-line serafinib, um, and they showed a overall response rate um, of 18% uh, in patients that received this for more than 12 weeks, um, which is compared to a historical control of serafinib alone, 4.5%, so it looks like potentially we're seeing more responses with this combination. And so to come back to our original um, tumor board uh, question, um, so we have a patient with NASH and compensated cirrhosis who initially presents with pain, um, has a taste based on those initial tumor characteristics, and then develops portal vein invasion, but still well-compensated liver function and good performance status. Um, our patient has an EGD, which shows no varices, um, and now is referred um, to a medical oncologist, which I'd like to point out is so unusual for other cancer diagnoses that the first time a patient sees a medical oncologist may be well into the treatment and after they have a diagnosis of cancer. Um, and so we recommend now um, atezolizumab and bevacizumab based on that uh, Embrave 150 data. So I thought this would be a good um, discussion to have for our group to think about, um, and we could start with Dr. Finn, what if the EGD had showed varices or increased bleeding risk? What, what would you do for first-line therapy in that case? Yeah, that's uh, obviously very topical. I mean, I think the reason first we all go with a Tezobev, per se, is because by several measures, it showed superiority. If you look at the risk reduction, a hazard ratio uh, of 0.58 and 0.59 for survival and PFS, and an objective response rate of 30% is really unprecedented in advanced liver cancer. And importantly, Embrave 150 did not exclude patients who had negative characteristics such as main portal vein invasion. That was a characteristic in Himalaya. Now, keep in mind, and, and we did have patients undergo endoscopies within six months of coming on Embrave, but 25% of patients actually had known varices, 
and about 14% actually had an, that was banded before coming on study. And as long as they were banded and felt not to be high risk for bleeding, they were allowed to come on study. So it really depends on what that endoscopy shows. I mean, are, if these are large varices that will need to be rebanded shortly thereafter, then I don't think I'd be comfortable offering them bevacizumab. At this point, Dervitremi is not approved. I mean, would I start with a Tezo and maybe add the Bev shortly thereafter once their varices are controlled? That's not an unreasonable option. But certainly anybody who has a definite contraindication because of bleeding, you know, Len or Serafinib are very reasonable options. And when approved, Dervitremi would probably sur surpass the TKIs because the response rate is higher at 20%. There's a survival advantage versus Serafinib, and there's no doubt that you know, Dervitremi is an active regimen in liver cancer. Dr. Kaseb, what do you think about the bleeding risk and that they were very similar actually with TKIs and atezolizumab? What do you think about um, giving TKIs with a patient with, uh, you know, untreated or partially treated varices? Yeah, so we, we face this scenario in clinic every single day, you know, where you have a patient either at very high risk or just had some variceal banding. So we all know that any antigenesis um, drug can put them at risk um, for bleeding from those varices or from delayed healing of the banding. So I totally agree with uh, Richard in terms of uh, favoring immunotherapy. Dervatremia would be the best. Uh, maybe nivolumab off-label as well. So these options are going to protect our patients or atezo alone have done this a lot to do atezos to start with for two three months until you get a good EGD that showed that the varices have healed and everything. So until we get uh, the official approval by FDA for Dervatremia, we're going to keep doing this off-label use of either Nevo or doing um, Atezo alone to protect our patients from this risk. Some studies with Sorafenib in particular showed that it decreases the portal hypertension. So suggesting that maybe it could be more tolerated. But uh, if I have the option of uh, selecting any of the immunotherapy, I will go for it. Um, uh, for sure in this population because of the risk of bleeding. Great. You know, I just wanted to point out also that, you know, every institution doesn't treat varices the same. So um, there's a um, body of research, right, that favors um, treating with beta blocker and not banding. And some of that data comes out of my institution. So depending on the hepatologist that sees the patient, sometimes um, they're, you know, started on beta blockers. And I find it um, a little unclear sometimes, you know, do we have to wait for a repeat EGD? What's the time frame for that? So I think it's a, you know, it's a big question. Um, but overall, I feel that it's so exciting that we could have a tumor board case like this where there's options to uh, debate. Because when um, I started in this field, um, it wasn't even a liver tumor board. It was really a transplant conference. Um, I sat in the back of the room, and when someone wasn't eligible for transplant or local therapy, they looked back at me and said, could this patient go on serafinib? And the fact that now it's really a liver tumor board and there's so much more interaction and discussion and options, it's really exciting. Um, and so I will um, pass the talk on to Dr. Kaseb. Thank you, Stacy, so much. And uh, 
Good evening, everyone, um, to those of us who are here and um, also the uh, attendees through virtual um, Zoom link. And very quickly to your point, Stacey, which is very, very critical for all of us, you know, for example, our GI team, they always pose three questions to me whenever I send somebody to get an EGD. This patient, uh, anticoagulation, that this patient have portal vein thrombosis, and when are you um, um, planning on starting anti-angiogenesis? Because those patients who have medium-sized varices, but they have total blockage of the portal vein, the main portal vein, and an anticoagulation for blend thrombus, they are even at higher risk. So you're going to start seeing some you know, risk-benefit ratio prioritization and beta blockers versus prophylactic banding. So our GI teams all over the country are also learning with us what to do for these patients. So um, my task today was um, to present to you some strategies, um, walk you through how we can do sequencing of treatment. Um, um, Richard and Stacy did a great job um, leading up to uh, my talk, uh, talking to us about um, where, um, how, how did we end up here, where we came from, all of these studies, the subtle differences in patient population and the outcome measures, so uh, they made my job much easier. So the first few slides, I'm gonna give a snapshot at where we are now, and then move quickly to how we could sequence, some ideas about sequencing treatment, uh, systemic therapy in front and second line setting, and then end of my talk, I'm gonna leave you with some ideas about future directions of hepatocellular carcinoma clinical trials, knowing that all of us in the medical oncology field now, we live and die by clinical trial approaches, and we're equally interested in that, um, even sometimes more than how we manage our patients on a daily basis. So with that, I'm going to move quickly here, a snapshot at you know, how we manage our patients, at the guidelines, um, liver-only disease with advanced cirrhosis. Of course, liver transplant is the um, only curative option and local or systemic, if not. And then for early or no cirrhosis, surgical resection of unilobar disease versus local or systemic. And then, of course, for metastatic and major vascular invasion systemic therapy. So the point of this slide here is that if you notice, systemic therapy has a place in every single setting for hepatocellular carcinoma, even transplant candidates and, and surgical candidates for downsizing, for example. And the choice of local therapy really depends on the size. So Richard did a great job here. Um, less than three centimeters ablation is the way to go. Three to seven, and he, Richard showed us five centimeter, seven centimeter average size in the original TACE studies that led to approval of TACE in HCC. So this is the sweet spot for TACE. And then beyond that, uh, you go for either Y90 or multiple TACE or XRT, and of course, um, uh, multifocal bilobar tumors or vascular invasion or matched systemic therapy. So Richard went through this. I'm going to quickly go through it. Of course, we know the survival benefit and the response rate uh, from the Embraer study. And then um, linvatinib modified resist at 24% um, as well. And then the um, second-line studies with uh, modest activity in survival and PFS and the NEVO-EPI uh, that led to approval. The point here is that the approved dose of NEVO-EPI has got high dose of EPI at 3 milligram per kilogram. So this is where we are. 2007, only sorafenib um, was the approved drug for HCC. Fast forward 10 years later uh, until we started to get some signals in other studies, regorafenib and nevo in second line, 
and then 2018 Linvatinib Pimpro, 2019 Cabo Ramiocerumab, and then Atezubev 2020, and then 2021 Nevo AP second line, and um, Dervatremio's press release. So hopefully it's going to be approved officially soon. So this is um, where we are. The green boxes are the approved drugs, sorafenib, linvatinib, atezobib, and frontline. And then Dervatrimi is the positive phase 3 study. We're eagerly waiting for the official FDA approval. Second line, we have Rego, Cabo, Ramio, and Nivo plus AP in a single arm study. Nivolumab single arm approval was uh, retracted, and we still use it off-label, as we mentioned, for patients or at risk for bleeding, for example. PIMPRO, Richard showed us the uh, studies from the East and West, um, showing the um, positive study from, from uh, China as well. So the first question is, uh, knowing the, how um, the field is, is really busy now, especially with uh, immunotherapy in front and second line, do we have any response predictors, such as immune staining or risk factors to favor immunotherapy in HCC? So this is a, a study that looked into retrospective assessment of inflammatory cytokines and um, inflammatory biomarkers and also flow cytometry and showed PDL1 in tissue and the cut point was 1%. So basically for patients with PDL1 more than 1%, those patients had an overall response rate of 28 26%, depending on whether or not they had sorafenib compared to only 16-13% um, in those who didn't have this uh, staining um, uh, more than 1%. So that's one of the signals there. However, if you look at other drugs, this didn't pan out. So the bottom line is the field is still evolving. There are some signals there, um, and this was similar to other um, um, settings such as lung cancer, for example. However, it's not validated yet. And then even more intriguing, the evolving data, Richard touched on that, you know, those patients with metabolic syndrome, NASH-related HCC, and the fact that there are some evolving data about not only preclinical, such as this nature study, looking into um, the mechanism of resistance to immunotherapy in this disease setting, but also the same publication here looked into pooled analysis from other uh, studies, published immunotherapy studies in uh, front and second line, and showed um, the same observation. However, it is not um, um, rising yet to a level of guiding therapy decisions, but it's something that we have to look carefully at down the line in future clinical trials. So the answer is there is no validated predictors to response, um, of response to immunotherapy in HCC today. How about response predictors or molecular markers or even risk factors of um, uh, prediction of response to targeted therapy in HCC. So here we've had uh, targeted therapy studies for over a decade, so we have a little bit more evidence there. So this is a meta-analysis published in, in JCO five years ago, looking into all randomized phase three studies um, of serafinib in HCC, and they showed the uh, benefit panning out in patients with hepatitis C as compared to hepatitis B. And there is some underlying uh, explanation for that. One of them, for example, is the positive effect of serafinib on the underlying portal hypertension as uh, one of the favorable side effects here. Also, some data about the pathogenesis of hepatitis C-related HCC involvement with RAF kinase pathway, for example, which is one of the targets of serafinib. 
And uh, this is another um, uh, approach here which has been validated and also is an indication for therapy, which is um, um, alpha-feroprotein cut point to 400 for remucerumab, uh, which was positive in the repeat study, which focused on high alpha-feroprotein more than 400 and showed a positive phase 3 study and ended up approving remucerumab for those patients. And if you look at the inclusion-exclusion criteria from um, uh, published phase 3 studies here, uh, for example, uh, Embrave 150 necessitated EGD within six months to look at the varices and treat them beforehand. Um, Linvatinib study also excluded main portal vein invasion, more than 50% liver occupation, and invasion of bile ducts. So alpha fetoprotein more than 400 is an indication for map here, so that's a biomarker um, um, indication for targeted therapy. There is a hint of better outcome with sorafenib in HCV-related hepatocellular carcinoma, and we should exercise caution in patients with main portal vein tumor thrombosis or um, um, high tumor load uh, or large varices, as we mentioned, in uh, specific agents before use. How about any clinical scenario that could give us a hint and could favor um, um, sequencing one drug over the other. So the um, resource study was actually designed um, that way. So they looked into patients who were on sorafenib, progressed on sorafenib, had some exposure to sorafenib, at least four weeks of treatment, and the study showed the benefit of 22 months if you sequence sorafenib followed by rigorafenib here. And the uh, question um, that is, has been lingering after that is in other studies that, such as for lumvatinib, for example, after progression on lumvatinib, can we use a rigorafenib or atezobiv? as well. So that's one of the ongoing questions because there is no evidence-based medicine um, in other agents such as lenvatinib or atezobev or dervatrimi, for example. All the second-line drugs were approved after sorafenib. How about uh, the immunotherapy era now? Um, I thought that we could actually take a step back and just ask simple questions. Number one, is immunotherapy contraindicated. And that's, for example, in patients with, um, let's say, autoimmune disease, for example, they are taking high-dose steroids and so on, and it's very hard for them to handle immunotherapy or they didn't uh, tolerate it at all. So those patients, uh, we are left with non-immunotherapy, so frontline, linvatinib, sorafenib. Second line is Rego, Cabo, and Ramio. And then um, in patients who um, don't have any contraindication for immunotherapy, then it's straightforward. So frontline is atezobev versus linvatinib or sorafenib. Second line, we have the TKIs and also the single-agent drugs, Nevo, Pimpro, or Nevo Epi. And, of course, Dervatribia will be placed in the frontline box here. How about patients who receive atezobev frontline? And now they are progressing. So those patients in the second-line setting, we mentioned the fact that we don't have any evidence-based medicine in this space. So uh, we could use lymvatinib or sorafenib. We could go also to second-line agents, Rego, Cabo. The only thing we're going to lose here is after atezobev, we cannot use single-agent immunotherapy, right? So there is no place here for any single-agent after atezobev progression. But you could have some combinations like, uh, such as nevo-epi with caution because we talked about the high dose of epi in this setting. And then in patients who never received atezobev, again, it's straightforward, so you can really start with atezobev versus lenvatinib or sorafenib, and then um, upon progression, uh, the field is wide open. However, as we mentioned, if they already received frontline immunotherapy combo, you cannot do it alone in the second-line setting. 
And this has been reflected in the ASCO guidelines and other societies' guidelines here that following frontline treatment with atezobev, second-line therapy with TKI is, um, is, you know, maybe recommended, and there is no data published yet um, to favor any of those agents in this setting. So sequencing um, IOs and TKIs in HCC patients really depends on mutual decision between the physician and the patient and discussing adverse events, uh, profile, comorbidities, personal preferences as well, oral and IV drugs. And this is here a very, very um, uh, straightforward example of how we can do that in, in real life here. So our case that we discussed here, and Stacy um, mentioned it in, uh, briefly, this patient who is now um, about to start systemic and had an EGD that showed no varices, no bleeding risk. So this patient started an atezobib versus the same patient if she was found to have high risk for bleeding or even had banding and ended up starting with either serafinic or dervatrimi. So what can we do in second line? So for those patients, we mentioned that in our algorithm treated with atezobev, then you could use any of the TKIs or a, a combination immunotherapy. So anti-PD-1 or a pd one with anti-CTLA-4. And those patients who end up starting with either you know, single agent TKI or dervatrimi, then the options are gonna depend on uh, the uh, strategy you started with. So, so those who started with single agent TKI, they can have combination of atezobev or combination of immunotherapy. Those who started with dervatrimi now, you cannot do single agent, or even some people would argue you cannot even do nivoepi, right? Because it's the same kind of um, combination strategy. So uh, the, the field is going to evolve once dervatrimi is approved, because it's going to be a new animal here. It, it is combination strategy with immunotherapy, so this could block us, um, at least theoretically, from using, of course, single agent and even uh, double agent immunotherapy. So in that case, if we start with dervatrimi, we're going to end up looking into um, either um, TKI alone, antiangiogenesis alone, or we have to use antiangiogenesis plus um, checkpoint inhibitors. So, and um, the field is going to evolve in a way that is going to also be affected by the clinical scenarios we talked about, hepatitis B versus hepatitis C versus NASH, but it is not yet at a stage where we can actually make treatment decisions based on those risk factors, uh, hepatitis versus none, but you're going to see this more in a clinical trial setting future, in future clinical trials. And then with that, I have a few slides here, uh, future strategies in terms of how we're, you should be thinking about future clinical trials. Most of us are involved with that on a daily basis as well when it comes to medical oncology. So we talked briefly about the early stage disease um, in patients with um, um, uh, resectable or transplantable. So in case of resection here, um, we should really start thinking about new adjuvant approaches in operable disease or even inoperable disease. Uh, downstaging if it is not resectable or doing it in a new adjuvant setting for operable disease uh, in a clinical trial fashion. So in these cases, you should start with uh, uh, biopsy profiling from tissue and blood, molecular, even imaging profiling for them, PET scan, for example, and others um, just following what other diseases such as rectal cancer, for example, in terms of the use of PET scan. So this is going to be evolving uh, in terms of clinical trial approaches in operable disease 
leave. Once a, a, a surgery is um, a go, then you have surgical samples. So now you have pretreatment and a time of surgery, so you can compare before and after um, uh, systemic therapy. And then adjuvant therapy approaches could be uh, dependent on um, the uh, complete resection profiling and personalizing the approach based on the antigens and based on the immune uh, profile of those patients. So this is how it should look like for those patients with early stage disease. Child POA, of course, and those patients don't have portal hypertension, so uh, pre-surgical for resectable disease, new adjuvant to downsize for unresectable disease. Now that we have agents uh, in combination that we reached almost 35% response rate, we should not write off in, uh, systemic therapy as a modality to downsize tumors, which historically was just reserved for TACE and portal vein embolization strategies and so on. And then adjuvant sitting uh, postoperatively, we are waiting eagerly for a lot of those studies to pan out. And we talked about how you can personalize your approach at time of surgery based on the molecular profiling and immune profiling as well. And this slide here, I would argue that this is really where the future is going to uh, be heading here, especially for us as medical oncologists uh, who are trying to, you know, uh, introduce immunotherapy and combination strategies with anti-angiogenesis as well. So I would start at the top here in patients with Barcelona Clinic stage B or C, so intermediate stage or advanced stage. And then I would argue that you should really look at the vascularity and the encapsulation. I always tell my fellows that we don't do TACE or Y90 because it's HCC. We do it because the tumors are very vascular and arterial phase, washout and imaging. We have nice capsule around them. So that's why they really benefit from intra-arterial therapy. That's why we don't do TACE or Y90 typically for any metastasis to the liver, even primary tumors such as cholangiocarcinoma, for example. So HCC is a very, very angiogenesis-driven tumor. Uh, that's why on imaging, you should be able to diagnose it in certain cases when biopsy is dangerous. You can even biopsy with, you can even treat based on the imaging pattern. So that's why if you have a patient with even biopsy-proven HCC, but you don't have this uh, hypervascularity and arterial phase, washout in venous, encapsulation, um, everybody um, could argue that they're not going to benefit from intra-arterial therapies. So for those patients with encapsulated hypervascularity tumors, we could look into intra-arterial therapies, randomized to intra-arterial therapies plus systemic. However, for those patients with hypovascular tumors, I would never do any intra-arterial therapies for them. We all know it's one of the very poor prognostic indicators to response to intra-arterial therapies. So in those patients, we will go systemic therapy versus systemic plus ablative therapies, such as, for example, external beam radiation or um, ablation if it is a small uh, tumor. Um, so in in terms of patients with metastatic or infiltrative tumors, that's also another very poor prognostic indicator tumors that are infiltrating on imaging. They never respond well to intra-arterial therapies. So hypovascular or infiltrative tumors, uh, we should really look for uh, clinical trial approaches doing systemic versus systemic. So this is, you know, a very uh, good closing 
slide here for all of us um, even to manage our patients on daily basis in clinic. This is not your regular TNM kind of look or even BCLC, which is a treatment allocation algorithm. You really have to look at this kind of with your radiologist, decide uh, with the radiologist and interventional radiologist if this patient, even with single tumor, as Richard said, you know, um, we should not write off a systemic therapy even in patients with liver-only disease, no vascular invasion or metastasis for this reason because we could select systemic therapy to start with in patients who we know they're not going to benefit from intra-arterial therapies because of the vascularity or the infiltrative pattern. So this is one of the very, very important lessons that we should be able to go home with today. And I'll stop here and turn it back to Dr. Finn. Thank you very much, uh, Ahmed. And uh, we will... Uh start with a, a brief uh, closing concepts. There's no doubt that local regional treatment is the standard of care for intermediate stage disease. However, we're learning that there are probably patients who don't benefit even though they're intermediate. And to tease that out is, I think, uh, an unmet need to define clearly who those patients are and to figure out the best approach for them in regards to systemic treatment. So there's been numerous efforts to try to define these patients. Uh, one approach has been the up to seven criteria, uh, which is a, a sum of the size and number of lesions. Similarly, this uh, nomogram takes into account the largest tumor diameter plus the number of tumors to come up with a score that is associated with median survival with chemoembolization. And you can see that there's a very broad prognostic significance based on this score, even if all these patients tend to be well compensated and have intermediate stage liver cancer. And we had shown this before, this idea that perhaps just on tumor size and number, that there's a group of patients who do not get as much benefit from TACE. As Stacy mentioned, there may be a group of patients who actually do better with Y90 than TACE. Uh, that has not clearly been defined, I would argue. However, we do have evidence, as reviewed by my colleagues today, that systemic treatment improves outcome. We can see from the Imbrave 150 data of Atezobev, when we look at objective responses for patients with Barcelona B disease, who came on study, and the majority of these were patients who progressed on TACE but still had intermediate disease, the objective response rate in that population by RESIST was well over 40%. Now, transplant is a curative approach, and it is our goal to get patients to transplant. Some patients are beyond criteria at the time of presentation, but keep in mind, transplant's a moving target. The criteria for transplant in certain parts of the country are different from others. Certainly, what we initially felt was the optimal patient, that within Milan criteria, one pa a patient with one tumor up to five centimeters or three tumors all under three centimeters has been expanded now using the UCSF criteria that allows for a, a larger tumor burden and there's even an effort now for patients who present beyond UCSF criteria, if they can get local regional treatment, they can be downstaged and then be potential candidates for transplant. Now, because of organ allocation challenges, patients are waiting 
up to two years, certainly in my center, to get transplanted with their main indication being liver cancer. Now, this is an interesting study. On the left here, a small study that came out of Japan that looked at patients and you know, compared the use of uh, lenvantinib with TACE versus TACE alone. And this study actually demonstrated that those patients who got lenvantinib earlier in their course in combination with TACE actually had a better survival than those patients who got TACE alone. This has not been validated in interest studies. This is the tactics study, uh, and you know, we wait to see further data. Tactics was actually with serafinib, but there's been similar studies with lenvantinib. Now, interestingly, there's ongoing studies. There's the ABC study being done in Europe, which is looking at atezobab versus TACE for patients with intermediate stage disease, a very bold study to question which is better for patients with Barcelona B disease. There's the Rego Nevo TACE, and that study's actually been changed because uh, Nevo is not being developed in combination with Rego anymore, but uh, with tizolizumab, another PD-1 inhibitor, and this will be in patients who have intermediate disease but are beyond up to seven criteria. So not those patients who are hypothesized not to do as well with TACE to see if a systemic regimen will improve outcomes compared to TACE alone. And there's been rationale, and there's been great effort to move anti-angiogenic drugs into earlier stage. There's been several studies with serafinib, which we could argue might be not the, the best drug for this, given it is a relatively weak VEGF inhibitor. But we know that embolization induces ischemia, right? That's how one of its mechanisms, you block arteries. Ischemia is a major driver of VEGF secretion. Uh, it, in, it makes this hypoxic environment. And unfortunately, the studies that generally were done with serafinib, several of the the large studies did not show a benefit with serafinib in earlier stage disease. And that is shown here. Uh, a number of studies, mostly with serafinib. There's the BRISC-TA study, which was done with Brivinib before uh, Brivinib had failed in its frontline and secondline studies. But none of them have proven a benefit to the use of uh, systemic treatment. And what you can see here is the natural history. If you look at the placebo arms in all these studies, the natural history of intermediate disease is quite long. You know, survival in BRISC, which was fairly large, even though it was stopped, it was the largest taste combo study done with 500 patients, median survival in the control arm was over two years. And it can be challenging to prove a survival advantage when you have such a long natural history. Now, there's this, been, this interesting idea of combining local regional therapy with immunotherapy. Uh, this study was done at the NCI and Tim Gretton's group. And the idea is that even with patients with advanced metastatic disease, treating a target lesion followed by immunotherapy might increase responses to immunotherapy by releasing neoantigens from tumor destruction, sensitizing the tumor, uh, and the immune system to treating distant disease and this whole idea of the episcopal effect. Uh, and this was a proof-of-concept study with some biologic correlates showing an increased infiltration of immune cells, even in tumors that were not ablated. 
And there's a number of studies going on with immunotherapy with, with local regional treatments. Several phase three studies highlighted here. Many of them are still accruing. I think the challenge to some of these studies, as mentioned, is the diverse population that is included in intermediate studies and the long natural history. But an important question, because without a doubt, the majority of patients we see probably are in this intermediate category. And the BCLC, I had commented, has been modified now. We now have this diversity in the intermediate group, suggesting that some patients might be curative and some patients should go straight to systemic treatment. Resection, also a curative approach. In the West, many of our patients are not resected because they have cirrhosis, portal hypertension, relative contraindications are you know, elevated bilirubin, as well as this uh, vascular invasion. We know the recurrence rate is quite high. It's related to tumor burden at presentation, but keep in mind this is a field defect. So the recurrence is not just from the tumor you resected, but you can have de novo new tumors develop because the soil, so to speak, is bad, right? The cirrhotic liver is a pre-malignant organ, and that's what makes transplant attractive. And when we looked at serafinib in the adjuvant setting post-resection, this was also a negative study. But there's several ongoing studies. Uh, I know uh, Checkmate 90X, the adjuvant NEVO study has completed accrual, and we're waiting for events. And, you know, Dr. Kasab has done one of these neoadjuvant studies, this one with CABO-NEVO, which allows us to see true biologic readouts, right? We, there's this idea that we can look at pathologic complete response, but really, the critical benefit here, I think, is getting tissue to better understand what these drugs are doing. And what about in the pre-transplant setting? I will caution all of you not to use IO routinely after transplant. That has a high risk of rejection. We have better options for patients that are safer. What about patients waiting for transplant? Well, there's been some data that suggests using IO within three months or so of Getting a transplant increases the risk for acute rejection. I think we need more safety data there. I think there's other things we can do to keep patients within transplant criteria. But critical is working together. This is a, a complex disease. Patients are best served at multidisciplinary centers. I think that's self-serving because all of us are at uh, multidisciplinary, high-profile high uh, tertiary centers. But really, several studies have shown that it improves outcomes for patients because they get assessed quicker, they get triaged to the correct treatments quicker, and also give patients opportunities for clinical studies. So I'm going to go through some of the questions here and rely on some of my colleagues for help uh, in the last five minutes. Uh, one of them is uh, an interesting question. Ahmed, why don't you take this? Can liver cancer be cured with combination treatment? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you look at the uh, uh, phase three studies, um, Richard, I think it was like 8% complete response on these. Right. So, so we have been able to achieve that with systemic therapy uh, alone to see those patients who go into remission, even actually in some studies with single agent um, immunotherapy, uh, NEVO and PIMPRO. So yes, it could, and we don't know what are the prognostic indicators for those patients. Um, so down the line, this is one of the active areas of research to biopsy before treatment so we can really have some idea about the predictors of this massive response which could help us achieve cure with immunotherapy. 
So there's a question here, which I think might be a typo, and I'll just clear it. PFS for serafinib and cosmic study was 15 and a half months. That's not correct. Uh, the PFS was 4.2 months and was increased to 6.8 months. Uh, I'm not sure what number they were referring to with the 15. Oh, OS. OS for serafinib was 15 and a half months. So for one, they excluded patients that did not have main portal vein invasion, right? So when you exclude those patients, you get a better outcome, plus the impact of crossover to other active agents. Thank you for clarifying. Uh, so this is a lot of options, but Stacy, one word. What's your best therapy after a Tezobev? Second line, go to. Uh, so I would go to lenvatinib for most patients, but for some patients maybe that had good response and were on it for quite a while, I would think about immune therapy in second line potentially for them, but not people who um, progress quickly. I think that's a very thoughtful answer because I think that's something we need to keep in mind as we develop drugs in the second line setting. Patients are different. Those who progress quickly on frontline I.O. versus getting a benefit clearly have some different biology. And I would argue the ones who progress fast, that's a very bad prognosis. Uh, Ahmed, what's the path forward to finding precision medicine drugs in liver cancer? Yeah, so really um, lies, you know, um, it's up to us. Um, the field has lost a lot when the ASLD guidelines in 2005 uh, gave us those guidelines to diagnose HCC and imaging, based on imaging and treat as such. And for years and years, other cancers have been biopsying and getting some molecular profiling, and we haven't been able to. But the last five years, major transformation happened, and even phase three studies necessitated new biopsies. So we're really going to depend on our ability to continue this trend to biopsy every single patient as long as it is safe and do these trials to do pretreatment biopsy to have a good idea about the um, profiling. What we learned from the past was that the druggable targets in HCC are universally low, less than 5% in majority of cases. If you look at all of these KRAS, you know, all of the other BRAF, these things that were successful, VEGF, uh, I mean um, FGF, all of these were successful in other cancers in HCC, they are not very highly expressed. So that's why we really have to be more innovative and look into, for example, PD, uh, one PDL one staining. So it's, it's, it's going to happen down the line, and it's going to happen quicker than we think because we are now biopsying all patients, and we're getting more idea about not only molecular profiling but also immune profiling. So uh, there's a question here about managing weight loss with lenvantinib, which I will field. Very difficult thing to manage with any of our drugs. Anorexia, weight loss... Uh, typically, you know, we can tell them supplements, boost, ensure, things like that, uh, eating frequent small meals, but at the end of the day, dose reductions and breaks are not unusual, and often, for me, that is one of the main indications to give patients a break. Uh, in the last few minutes, uh, how is the role of taste changing in practice? There are many trials ongoing with taste and systemic treatment. How will they keep up with enrollment? And, and complete with trials like Emerald 3. You know, I think the answer for many of us will always be to get patients on clinical trials if we can. Until some of these read out and change practice and are positive, I think uh, there's plenty of opportunity to get patients on clinical study, and some of them are looking at targeted populations, clinically targeted. Uh, so I think there's opportunity. Uh, 
And some other questions here about second-line treatment. Everything we discussed today is an option. No one can tell you the best, because uh, that hasn't been established. And in reality, as patients are living longer, it's important to transition patients to systemic treatment before they decompensate, so they get an option to seeing drugs that have all been proven to improve survival. Not necessarily after the new frontline regimens, but we know that they are anti-liver cancer drugs. And I now have patients that are living long enough that they're just cycling through four or five lines of therapy. And they're probably getting, I hope, some incremental benefit from everything we do. And maybe the last question here, uh, Stacy, there's a question, a young and fit patient, should a young and fit patient deserve the chance of cure with multidisciplinary treatment? And, and I think all of us would say yes, so I'm going to put a little twist on it. A young and fit patient who has V2 vascular invasion, right? Do you treat that patient different or look at them saying with curative intent versus someone uh, who doesn't have vascular invasion? Well, I guess the question is what's the best path even to curative intent, right? So if someone's not a transplant candidate, not a resection candidate, I think, you know, honestly, the biggest debate really is between local therapy and when to start systemic, right? I think that's really the big discussion. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a culture shift as we have more data with systemic therapy to really argue about potentially starting systemic therapy first and not just trying to downstage people with local therapy and that you're potentially offering them more of a chance at long-term survival that way. But you know, we really need more data in these studies and I think it is a big culture shift because you know, the field is very wedded to local therapy and, and patients really often want local therapy, right? Like it makes sense to them. And so I, I think that, you know, of course, we want to treat all patients as much as possible with curative intent. I think the question really is, what is the best path to that? And I think sometimes it's unclear. You know, Excellent summary. Uh, so I'm going to close the event. I thank uh, my colleagues. I thank PeerView. I thank all of you. This activity is certified by PVI, PeerView Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NGF 860. This educational activity has been supported in part by independent medical education grants from AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Novocure Incorporated.